Thank you, Hayes, Bethany, team. Good morning again, church. It's good to see you here today. Hey, grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to James chapter 4. James 4 is where we're going to be this morning. As we jump into a new area of study for us, we are still in our season of renewal. And that's something we're just going to kind of keep in the background as we move forward over the uh, next foreseeable future. So I want you to kind of keep this in mind. We're going to go on into other sermon series and other things, but this is always going to kind of be the the back of the mind concept. Thank you, Hayes. Uh, That you and I are in a period of renewal. We need that transformation, that restoration that comes from Jesus Christ. And so we're seeking after that and we're praying and asking him to bring that for however long that takes and whatever way that it takes. But that's where we're going to be living. But uh, we're going to be looking at one of the ways we can do that over the course of the next couple months. And we're going to be able to do that through prayer. And we'll start that in James chapter 4 and verse 1 in just a moment. James chapter 4 verse 1 in just a moment. There is an old cliche uh, that says that men do not like to ask for directions. You ever heard that? Now, I say that's an old cliche because it honestly doesn't really work a whole lot anymore. It used to be a time where you would often find yourself in a place where you would have to ask for directions. That world is kind of gone. We all have a phone in our pockets and we typically have no problem asking Google for directions. Like we don't have a problem to asking our car or Bluetooth, whatever, say, hey, give me directions to so-and-so. And we have no problem just getting those directions and going wherever we want. We don't even think about where we're going because we know we've got those directions right there in our pocket. And I don't even know if the, the cliche was ever always true. I don't know if that was true for all men or if it was just only for men and not for women. But I would imagine that some of it is true because what happens when you don't have your phone with you? Or if you find yourself in that place outside of coverage and you actually have to do ask for directions and you will find the old cliche coming to bear once again. And suddenly we all of a sudden don't want to ask for directions anymore. We'd rather figure it out. We're even willing to be lost. We're even willing to take longer if necessary, but I don't want to ask somebody else for directions. Why is that? Why is it that we have this aversion to asking for directions? I guess one of the reasons would be that in that moment, you are having to admit out loud that you have no idea where you are. You have no idea where you are and you have no idea where you're going. And because you're asking this random stranger, you're letting them know, but you do. You know where you are. You know where we're at. You know where things are. You know something that I don't. And that is just something that is uncomfortable for most of us. We don't like to admit that we don't know where we're going. We don't know the directions. We don't know where we're supposed to be. And so we'd rather just take the hit and take whatever extra time it takes to to do that on our own. And look, on a trip, that doesn't cost you all that much. What does it cost you? A couple minutes, you know, maybe an hour or two. It doesn't cost you all that much. What happens, though, when this becomes your life? When we become so averse at asking for directions, we become so averse to admitting that we need help, that we will waste years of our life only to prevent us from having to ask anyone, even the Lord, for direction on where we need to go. And that kind of attitude can be incredibly destructive. We actually see that in James chapter 4. Listen to what James says in chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to how he describes some people of the Lord. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's stop right there. James is talking to believers and they have found themselves in a chaotic moment where they do not know where they need to go. And he has an answer for them on how they can actually move out of this. How would you find direction? How would you find the place you need to go? And the answer that he gives us in this passage is prayer. Now, that might not be immediately obvious from the text because the word prayer doesn't actually occur in this passage. And yet it's the through line through the entire thing. Look what he's going to say in verse, uh, in verse 5 or, or, or earlier where he says, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you in verse 8. How do you do that? Do you do that through prayer? In verse 2, it says, you don't have because you do not ask. Well, who is he asking? He's talking about asking God. How do you ask God? Well, that would be prayer. Verse 3, you ask and you'll receive because you ask with wrong motives. Again, who are you asking about this? Well, the Lord, which means we're talking about prayer. And then as he finishes the letter, if you look at the end of chapter 5, he will talk very specifically about prayer as this avenue. And we'll get there as well in just a few moments. And so the through line from, from all of this is prayer. Specifically right there in verse 8 where he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that really is the essence of prayer, is it not? That we are drawing near to God. When we pray, we are drawing near to him. That is the purpose of prayer. And, and maybe not using the word is actually helpful to us. Maybe not actually saying the word prayer can be helpful for us in this passage. Because whenever we say the word prayer, that usually comes with a lot of different things. If you are a believer and have walked with the Lord for a long period of time, I imagine that you've prayed for most of, if not all of your life. Even if you aren't terribly spiritual, it's almost instinctive for us to pray at certain points. Almost in spite of yourself. If you find yourself in a chaotic moment, you will find yourself lifting up a prayer to you know not who, but you hope someone is listening. It just kind of happens. But when we as Christians talk about prayer, it's very easy for us to hear that word and instantly we begin to get tripped up. We, we begin to think about technique. We begin to think about, well, how long do I have to do that? How do you do that? Uh, what, what's going to happen if I do this? What about that? What about the questions? Why does it work here? Why does it not work there? And all of a sudden we just kind of roll down and we all miss the point. To draw near to God. Right? All those questions are important and, the, and all those answers will come, but, but the 
the grounding of all prayer is simply this, is that we would draw near to God and he would draw near to us. Now, before we go any further, we do need to deal with our theological baggage. We need to check it and stow it safely uh, before we move along any farther. Let's talk about our theological baggage, because when we talk about God drawing near to us and us drawing near to him, people might bring up some theological objections. They might say, wait a minute, Adam, I thought God was omnipresent. Isn't he everywhere? So how can God draw nearer to me? I thought he was already here. That is true. Furthermore, scripture says that if I'm a believer, Christ is in me and I am in him. That is all also true. Colossians tells us that I am seated with him in the heavenlies. Even now as a believer, I am in him. He is near me right now. And that is true. If you look at verse five in our text, he actually says it even here. He says, don't you understand that the scripture says uh, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And so he said, wait a minute, how can I draw near to God if he's already here? If he's literally in me, how much nearer can God be to me? And in a sense, he can't get any nearer than he already is. He is already present in us as believers. But all of these things that we just mentioned are talking about where God is positionally. Where we are positionally. As believers, we are in Christ positionally. He is in us. We are in him. God is with always everywhere positionally. That is always true. But that's not what's being described in this passage. When he says to draw near to God and God will draw near to us. He's not talking about this in terms of position. He's talking about this in terms of relationship. To draw near to God means this. I am drawing near to him relationally. That God is drawing near to me relationally. Look, I see this too often in my line of work, but it's possible for you to be married to somebody and not be terribly close to them. You ever seen that? A couple said, like, positionally, they are married. Legally, they are married, but relationally, they are far apart. They aren't actually interacting with one another, but they're married. Well, how would you fix that? Well, you don't fix a problem with that by just declaring your position. Well, hey, we're married. Guess what? That had never changed. The problem, if you find yourself distant from someone you love, is to draw near to them. Is to draw near, to, to, to pursue them, to seek them out, to, to draw near relationally. And that's what is being spoken of here. Positionally, we are in Christ, but it is possible for us to grow distant in our relationship. And so the Lord says here, we need to draw near to him in prayer. That's what prayer is. But notice the reciprocal promise. He commands us to draw near to God, but then God gives us a promise and he will draw near to us. Let that sink in for just a second. As Christians, we're we're so used to this idea that we can just run right past it. But the God of the universe is saying this, when you draw near to me, I am drawing near to you relationally. That is an astounding concept. It's almost laughable. Here's what it means. Every single time you prayed, when you just prayed a moment ago in the service, when you begin to lift up your soul to him, the creator of all existence leaned in to listen to you. He pulled his chair up a little bit closer to the table, put his, put his hands on his elbows and, and said, tell me more. The God of the universe draws near to us relationally when we pray. What an astounding promise that God gives to you and to me. 
And that is for all of us. It doesn't matter who you are in this room. It doesn't matter how many years you've been a Christian, how you perform as a Christian, does not matter. Whoever you are, when you draw near to God, God draws near to you. This is not simply for the spiritual elite. This is not simply for the, for the, the pastors or the missionaries or the, the spiritual professionals. He says, no, for anyone who would draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You might say, well, how do you know that? Well, let's go to the end of the book. Let's look, look at James chapter 5 because he's going to say this very specifically. Just one chapter over, James chapter 5, verse 13. He will talk very specifically about prayer. And listen to what he says, James 5, 13, and I'll put this up on the screen. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. James now comes out and speaks very directly about prayer. And he says that this powerful prayer is available to anyone who would draw near to the Lord. And to prove the point, he starts talking about Elijah. I've been studying Elijah for the last few weeks. I've been reading a book uh, about him. It's been fascinating. An interesting figure, a prophet of the Old Testament who also looms large in the New Testament as well. And that's just one of those names you might recognize from the Old Testament. Names like Moses or David or Abraham. And there's a danger, I think, when we start talking about these people and that we think that they are fundamentally different from us. Like, have you ever met somebody who is just at the top of their game? Like, who is just like at the top of their field? Somebody who is just head and shoulders different than everybody else? Well, like, think about your profession. I want you to think about the person who is just better at your profession than anyone else in your field. You look at them and say, hey, listen, that is head and shoulders above anyone else. I I cannot believe they are just different. They are gifted. Think about an athlete, someone who's just at the top of their game. Think about the Olympians we saw this summer. You're you're thinking LeBron, you're thinking Michael Jordan. You're you're thinking about people who are just head and shoulders, Michael Jordan, head and shoulders above everybody. He was very tall. Just above, just different. this This is a unique talent. I know for me, the smartest person I've ever ever met in my entire life is a man named Dr. Gerald Bray. Uh, I'm not saying he's the smartest man on the planet. He's just the smartest person I have personally ever met. The things he can comprehend, the the amount of knowledge he has at at instant recall is astounding to me. Uh, Think about it. You're seeing a a musician, a a poet, an an artist, a, a band performing. You said, this band is better than all other bands. That band is U2, by the way, if you're wondering what that was. Just in case. But guess what? You see these people and you just say, these people are different. They, they are better. They have a gift that is, that is just different from other people. And sometimes that's true. When it comes to musicians or athletes or whatever, they're just, that's just true for some people. But not when it comes to the biblical figures. Look what he says here. In verse 17, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. How come Elijah 
had such power in prayer. We're, we're tempted to think that he's just different. That, that he was like a Michael Jordan. He was just born with some innate spiritual sense that is different, that is better than the rest of us. That we could never possibly attain to. And so we're in awe of, of their accomplishments. But we never deign to think that we could do the same thing. And that would be a mistake. James is saying, don't you understand? He's just a guy. He didn't get a leg up. He didn't have a special gift. He's just a man, a human like us with our same nature. So what made him different? And it was his relationship with the Lord. Elijah didn't run around and get all his prayers answered. He was listening to the Lord. This prayer for rain here, the Lord told him to pray it. And the Lord told him when to tell him to stop praying it. He was listening to the Lord. He walked with the Lord. And because he had this relationship with the Lord, God did powerful, supernatural, life-transforming things through him. And he is saying this here. When you and I draw near to God and he draws near to us, that that is absolutely possible for us as well. And I don't know about you, but I believe that we need that. Do we not? We need a transformation from the Holy Spirit. We need a powerful move of the Holy Spirit in our lives, do we not? For the pain that we have experienced, for the chaos that we are living in, for the chaos in our times, what we need more than anything is a powerful, transformative move of the Holy Spirit. And that is not simply reserved for certain people at certain times or only select individuals. He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. This is the pathway of transformation. The pathway of healing for us as individuals, for us as a congregation, the pathway of restoration for our entire culture is not going to be government mandates. It is not going to be championing our rights. It's not going to be yelling at our neighbors. The transformation we all need comes through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. And the question is, do we believe that? Not just here on Sunday mornings. But in our lives, will we live that out? Will we draw near to God and ask him to draw near to us, firmly believing that what Jesus says, ask and you will receive, he meant it. That when he says, you will do even greater things than I am doing because I am going to the Father, that he meant it. That we're people just like Elijah, the same kind of people, and we know the same God, and he is inviting us to pray. And so that's what I'm inviting us into for this next season. That we would become a people of powerful prayer. That we would become a people who take this seriously and choose to draw near to God in all that we do. In our Bible studies, in our personal devotional lives, here in this room on Sunday mornings like we have already done today. In all that we've done. Not to say that we've never prayed before. Obviously, we have. But in this season, to make this such a priority that it would define us. That we would choose purposefully, faithfully to draw near to God so that we would see him also draw near to us. And to see what powerful, transformative things that he could do through us. Would that not be incredible? And so that's the journey I would invite you on as we walk through this series over the next couple months. But as we begin that journey, it is important to consider our posture as we come before the Lord. 
I'm not talking about your physical posture, although that's kind of important. That's a totally different sermon. But I'm talking about like your spiritual posture. Like when we come before the Lord, how do we come before him? What's What's our attitude as we approach the Lord? When we draw near to him, what is our spiritual posture? Have you ever been somewhere where you were talking to somebody, maybe it was at a party or at your office, and after a minute or two, you realize that the person you're talking to is not really listening to you at all? You ever notice that? Like they're, they're talking and you're talking, I take that back, you're not really talking, you're just listening, right? Because they're talking and they're glad to talk and they continue to talk and you can't catch their eye and you can't get a word in edgewise and you begin to recognize that when they blink, like if you stepped away and another human being showed up, it would not change what they were saying. They wouldn't even notice because they're just going to keep talking, right? And even if you do manage to say something, they're going to stop long enough for you to stop talking. They will ignore what you said and then keep talking about whatever they were going to talk about. It's, I mean, it's kind of annoying, right? I mean, it's not fun to talk to somebody who's not actually listening to you. It's annoying. And I wonder if that's how the Lord feels about me sometimes. When I come to him in prayer and then I just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Can you imagine me talking? Talk and talk and talk. And then it's done and I'm out. Is there listening? Is there interaction? Do you ever wonder if that's the way the Lord might feel about us? What's our posture when it comes to prayer? Because it's possible for us to, to bring an, an, an attitude of arrogance into our prayer life. And it may seem weird to, to put those two words together, arrogance and, and prayer life. But I want you to see that. Let's go back to James chapter 4. And remember, we're going to reread these first couple of verses. Remember, as we read them, James is talking to believers. He's not talking to lost people. He's talking to Christians. And listen to what he says. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I would just like to paste those two verses as the banner for the 2020s so far. Can we do that? I say poster verses for the 2020s, but I digress. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. You, do not re- you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. All right, so James is talking to believers. And he says, man, when it comes to your prayer life, your, your spiritual posture is off. It's short-circuiting the, the, the prayer. You're short-circuiting the whole endeavor. We're not truly, humbly Coming before the Lord, drawing near to him, but we, we're actually coming to him in arrogance. And again, that, that just seems contradictory. And I just don't understand that. How, if I'm choosing to pray, these aren't lost people. These aren't people who are ignoring the Lord. I mean, if you're actually going to take the time to come and pray to the Lord, wouldn't that preclude arrogance? Wouldn't that preclude that possibility? And, and the sad reality is no. This is possible for us. We need to keep aware of that that's going to keep us humble because if not that arrogance will continue to grow let me show you three ways that this can happen to us we we can find ourselves being arrogant when we pray first off when we don't pray at all when we don't pray at all look at verse two it says you don't have because you don't ask 
Jesus said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. But what happens when we just don't ask at all? Has this ever happened to you where you've gone through a season or an experience or a major decision and you had, to, you had to do things, you had to figure things out and you do all of it and you get to the end of it and you turn around and realize that you didn't really pray at all about that decision? We, we got through it. You, you made it through. You made a decision. You got things done. But I didn't really pray about that decision. Should I take that job? Should our kids go to this school? Should we buy that house? Should we buy this car? Should we do that thing? Should we go here? Should, should, we, should we take this opportunity? Do we even stop to pray to ask the Lord for guidance? And for many of us at different points in our lives, I think the answer just might be no. We got through. We tried to do our best. We tried to honor the Lord in the decision, but we didn't actually pray about it. Why is that? Why would we not ask the Lord for help? Why would we not ask him for guidance? Do we not believe that he actually will respond to us? Do we not believe that he cares about us enough to to help us in that? Or maybe it's deeper. We just think we got this. We're good. We're smart. Accomplished. Generally talented. Okay people. And and I I think I got this. And we just do it on our own. We make the assumption that we don't actually need the help of the Lord. Do you you see the problem? If we find ourselves in a place where, where prayer just doesn't happen, we find ourselves neglecting it for days, weeks, months at a time. We find ourselves struggling to even, to even bring ourselves to, to pray and to ask the Lord. We need to be asking ourselves the question, why is that? Like I dare you to dig underneath that and find out what the unbelief is. Why, what, what keeps us from prayer? What, what, what keeps us from actually asking him for help in these matters? We, we need him. But when we don't pray, it reveals that arrogance we don't have because we don't ask. The second problem is when we only pray for what we want. When we only pray for what we want. Look at verse 3. He says, you ask and you do not receive. Uh, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, that's a weird verse there. Did you know that you can pray wrong? I didn't know that. You can pray wrong. We can actually get it wrong. We pray wrongly to spend it on our passions. James has no problem being blunt. And so he just, I say, listen, you're praying now, but, but you're, you're not praying right. Why? Because your motive in prayer is just to get what we want. And I don't know about you, but I, I think this has been true for me at times in my life. Or when you really look at my prayers, it's just a list of things I'm asking for. It's just, I, I want this, and 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 I want this. Which, P.S., let me go ahead and apologize for being every other preacher in the universe who had a kid and now wants to use parenting metaphors for the rest of his life. But that's going to continue to occur, so just buckle up for that, for like the next, I don't know, 15 years. Um, but that's what's happening. But, but guess what? I, I have a kid now, and, and it's crazy that when you give your kids things, they aren't grateful forever. They wake up the next day wanting more stuff. And when you remind them about what you gave them yesterday, they do not care or remember. They just want what they want today. And when you get to tomorrow, they're already planning what they want tomorrow. 
And they're going to ask for that thing tomorrow. You say, but I gave you the thing today and I gave you the thing yesterday. Yes, but what are you going to give me tomorrow? Because I want that. It is just an endless list of wants. And we see ourselves in this. Because the Lord has been faithful. We prayed this earlier in the service. We, we reflected on the faithfulness of the Lord. And yet, when it comes to prayer, sometimes all we do is ask. Now look, there's nothing wrong with asking. Jesus actually invites us to ask. He, he calls us to ask. There is nothing wrong with asking for things in prayer. But something is terribly wrong if we only ask for things in prayer. No praise. No worship, no thanksgiving, no reflection, no listening, no just enjoying the Lord, only the asking. Well, that reveals something. That our motive is not to draw near to God relationally, to know him for who he is, but simply for the gifts that he can give. And while he is a gift giver, that is not the only reason he exists. If we find ourselves really leaning way too heavily on the asking side, maybe a question we can ask is, is why am I asking for this? Like before I ask it of the Lord, just ask the question, why am I asking for this? What's my motive for wanting this? And see what the Lord does in response to us. Here's the third way that this might happen to us is when we pray to impress the Lord. Never tried that? When we pray to impress the Lord. Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, verses 7 and 8. We'll put this up on the screen. Jesus says, And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, again, it's fine to ask. But you see, the problem here is that these people assume that if I just pray enough, if I say enough Hail Marys, if I pray for enough minutes, if I pray for enough days consecutively in a row, if I, if I do the system correctly, then God will give me what I want. It's a transactional prayer system where God wants praise and worship. And so I'll give him that. But what I really want is what I want. And so I'm going to give God what he wants. And then ultimately he'll give me what I want. And so I'm going to go through the motions and I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to say all the right things, but I'm going to work this system so that God gets what he wants. And then ultimately I can get what I want. It's almost like we're looking for like a life hack for prayer. How do I make prayer more efficient? How do I make prayer work? How can I get more out of prayer with less actual prayers prayed? And we're kind of working the game or the system. Which, P.S., I like me some games. Do you like games? I'm a sucker for all the credit card uh, games where they say you get this number of points. And if you get this number of points, you can have this many flights. You can have this or that. I am a sucker for all of these. I love them all. Because I love the process of figuring out all the different rules and then finding the loopholes where I'm going to stack. I'm going to watch. I'm going to wait. I will plan for a year. I will watch all your sales. I'll know where they are. I will stack four things in a row. And at the end of the day, you will hand me a ton of merchandise and I will hand you pennies in response. And that feels good. Because I won the game. Man, it's nice to work the system. You haven't broken any rules. You worked within the system and you got what you wanted. That is not a great motivation when it comes to prayer. To say, but but I I went to church and and I did my quiet time. I did my Bible study and I avoided those three sins. You know, I did those a while back, but I don't do those anymore. But I did those and I said the right thing and I prayed for four people and I actually gave and I did this thing. And so certainly God will do this thing now, right? And and it's it's a transactional prayer. And the Lord is saying, that, that's not drawing near to me relationally. That's not what I'm actually looking for. 
And, and I think the problem that what we're seeing happening here is, is that we, we fail to see who we really are when we come to prayer. Like when we draw near to God, the, the problem is, is that we don't actually see ourselves clearly. And, and this has been a consistent problem. This has been a consistent problem for humans. Of all areas, of all times, we all have a problem seeing ourselves properly. Think about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus Christ himself and says, Oh, Jesus, don't worry about it. I've already done all the law. I did it all. Don't worry about it. No need for that cross thing. I got you, man. I've already done it. The prodigal son who goes to his father and says, I really don't want you, but your money I'll take. But I don't need a relationship with you. I just need your stuff. Can I have that? Not knowing the destruction he's about to sow for himself. What about the Laodicean church? We talk about them a lot, but in Revelation, Jesus says this about them. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You look great on the outside. You don't see yourself as you really are. Or maybe we come to the Lord like a publican, a Pharisee. Uh, when he's there at the same time as a tax collector. Go to the next page. This is uh, Jesus speaking in Luke. It says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. That when it comes to prayer, our posture is important. Are, are we coming in in arrogance and coming in on our own power? Do we try to approach the Lord as equal or do we, do we recognize who we actually are? Do, do we recognize our, our wretched estate? Do we actually see that, that apart from the Lord, we have nothing to offer him? We, we literally have quite nothing to give to him. But we don't have to. Look what James says. Go back to chapter 4. And look what he says starting in verse 6. It says, but he gives more grace to these Christians who are quarreling and fighting and trying to, to, to work the prayer system to their advantage. He says, don't you see? But God gives more grace. Not just the grace that saved you way back then, but the grace that is sustaining us even now. Grace for today. Grace for our problems today. He says he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. See, this is the path. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do you hear James echoing Jesus himself? From that parable in Luke, he's just saying exactly what Jesus has already said. If you're going to exalt ourselves, we're going to get humbled. But when we humble ourselves, that's when we're exalted. 
You see, this is the pathway to joy and life. This is the pathway to powerful prayer. It is not the pathway of the world. It's not the pathway of posturing and, and power and, and conquering and domineering and, and, and overcoming and, and all these things. Instead, it's the pathway of the cross. The pathway of our Savior who says you have to lose to gain and die to live and submit. In order to be truly free, we humble ourselves That's the only way to be truly exalted. But man, we just don't like that. We'd rather play the game. We'd rather do it on our own. But but to come before the Lord and to humbly recognize, I, I have nothing to stand on. Even if you've got decades of, of walking with the Lord under your belt, that has not earned us any more purchase with him. The righteousness we have is not our own. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ in which we stand. And it is all that we need. He has given us everything and he will give more. He'll give more grace tomorrow and the next day and the next. We have boldness to to walk into the very throne room of God because of who Christ is. But man, we don't like it. You see, there's a problem with being humble. There's a problem with humility. It's this. Humility is humiliating. Humble sounds great. Humiliating does not. And it's humiliating to admit that we're not okay yet, even after all this time, that we're still broken and still messed up and still got stuff to work on and still have places where the Lord is moving in us, which is why we don't do it. And yet this is the pathway to freedom. It's the pathway to joy and life when we humbly come before the Lord and say, God, I don't deserve your attention. And I am going to live in awe of the fact that I get it anyway. I have not earned an audience with you. And yet you graciously draw near to me. God, I wish I could have something to offer to you, but I've got nothing but filthy rags and yet you offer me clean clothes and riches and glory that I could never earn. What happens when we humbly come before the Lord and say, God, will you help me? You see, it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been. You say, Adam, I I still don't believe that this kind of prayer is available for me, that that kind of power is available for me, but it is. Look what he's going to say in Hebrews. This is chapter 7. It's going to say this. Can we put that up on the screen? It's verse 725. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know what Jesus is doing right now? He's drawing near to you. At this exact moment, he is praying for you, interceding for you, drawing near to you. He ever lives to intercede for us when we draw near to God. He does actually draw near to us. The cross is the proof. It stands to say it's empty. He has been resurrected. Your sins have been paid for and he is offering this to us and he gives us an invitation. Will we humbly, not in our arrogance, not in our own righteousness, but just in all of our chaos and brokenness, Could we draw near to God and experience him drawing near to us? Because when we come in that attitude, heaven and earth begin to move. In us first and foremost. And then in our relationships. In our congregation. And in the world around us. Just like Elijah. When we start 
with a humble confession to him. And so do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I wonder what that would look like for us as we begin this journey together this season. What would it look like to, to humbly come before the Lord? Again, this isn't fake groveling. This isn't trying to make something up. It's just a, an honest recognition of, of who we are and an honest recognition of who he is. That we're not equals with him. And yet he is leaning in, listening, drawing near to you. And inviting you close, he speaks in the language of relationship. You can say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. He calls us sons. He calls us daughters. He calls us family. And he is leaning in, saying, I have already made the pathway open. I have drawn near to you. Will you draw near to me? And look, I don't know what your prayer life is like, and I'm not going to ask you. But you do. And is there some sort of a block? Is there something that keeps you from him? Something that that makes you uncomfortable? Is it something we don't want to admit? Is it just, I don't know. But but could could you look at it long enough to ask why? And then just take it to the Lord. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what you find. He already knows. And he has already declared that he loves you, he accepts you, he has forgiven you, and he will never abandon you. So why would we hold that back? Could we we start in humility and say, God, we need you. God, I need you. God, we as a people, we need you. And our solutions just don't work. And so we choose to humbly come before the Lord and simply say, God, we need your help. Would you guide us? Would you help us? Would you restore us? And we will follow after you. And so, Father, that is our prayer. I know you'll answer our questions and you'll you'll move us through, but on this journey, Lord, we, we just need to start here. And I'm sorry it's taken so long for some of us, but... Or it's been a while for some of us. But we choose to humbly come before you and simply ask for you to move because we can't fix this on our own. But you can. We can't change ourselves on our own, but you can. We can't change the world around us, but you can. And so we choose to lift our eyes to you, to trust you, to put our faith in you, seeing all of who we truly are and accepting the the grace for today that you give, would you just stir up in us a passion, a heart to draw near to you in all that we do? And Lord, we will listen, we will follow, and we will obey. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.